Hey there, I'm so pumped to tell you about an amazing new community I've launched called Grief to Growth Circle Community. It's a space for people who are grieving to come together to support each other and for people who want to know who we are, why we're here, where we're going to have those conversations, all the things we talk about on the podcast. So I invite you to join me at grieftogrowth.com slash community to become part of this compassionate crew. The best part is 100% free. And you have access to me in addition to everybody else in the community. In fact, the podcast will be there so you can talk about the things we talk about in the podcast right there in the community. There's also some premium content if you want to go deeper in the work I'm doing, but mostly it's about building relationships and community and about sharing resources and supporting each other. So come on over and check it out. It's grieftogrowth.com slash community. I'll see you inside. Hi there. Welcome to Grief to Growth Podcast. Your host is Brian Smith, spiritual seeker, best-selling author, grief survivor, and life coach. Brian believes that the worst tragedies of life provide the greatest opportunity for growth. Brian says he was planted, not buried, and he is here to help you grow where you've been planted by the difficulties in life. In each episode, Brian and his guests will share what has helped them to survive and thrive. It is his sincere hope this episode helps you today. Hey, everybody. This is Brian back with another episode of Grief to Growth. And I've got with me today a very special young man. His name is Jacob Cooper. Uh, Jacob Cooper is a clinical social worker. He's a certified Reiki master and a certified hypnotherapist who specializes in past life regression therapy. He works privately with clients through online services. Uh, Inspired by his near-death experience and transformative encounters, he facilitates spiritual awareness and empowerment through life-changing seminars. Currently, Jacob resides and practices in Long Island, New York. He's the author of Life After Breath, which is published by Waterside Productions. And uh, just to let you know up front, if you do want to reach Jacob, his website is jacoblcooper.com. It's Jacob, J-A-C-O-B-L as in Lee, cooper.com. And with that, I want to welcome Jay Cooper to Grief to Growth. Thank you so much for having me on as an honored guest, Brian. I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you. No, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, Jake, I've read... Several indie stories. I've had several people on the podcast who have had near-death experiences. One of the ways that you're unique, I usually ask people when you tell your story, start you know wherever you like, whether you want to start with the experience or before the experience. But in your case, you were three years old when you had this experience. So probably not a whole lot of life experience before that. But uh, tell our listeners about this experience you had when you were three years old or wherever you'd like to start. Absolutely. So... I was three years old at the time. I didn't know it, but I had an up, highly contagious upper respiratory virus called pertussis, otherwise known as whooping cough, which left untreated for infants, children, or even adults. Uh, in rare cases for the adults, but mostly infants and children uh, could be fatal if left untreated uh, due to suffocation. Uh, and so I went to a park that September morning with family friends of mine. And at the time, it was my babysitter and my sibling. And I was just going there to the park like any other day and just having a good time there. Um, as I was in the car, I you know, began, you know, kind of noticing a bit of um, just kind of dizziness or noticing, you know, kind of like a different energy around me, which I describe in the book as a vortex of energy around myself that just felt almost kind of like a vacuum for my inner being that I just pushed aside and ignored because mm-hmm. You know, my mind was telling me one thing, but, you know, a part of me just wanted to go out there and have a good time. So I buried conventional wisdom that 
something profound that I couldn't quite touch was on the horizon. And I just wanted to play in the playground. And so mm-hmm. I got out of the car, you know, despite the nausea and, you know, some just dizziness that I was having. And I just ran as fast as I could up to the ladder onto a slide. And as I was climbing up each rung of the ladder of the slide, my breathing became more belabored and, and, and more debilitated uh, through every step that I was climbing. It became the nausea continued to grow. Um, then I got you know, to the top of the slide. All of a sudden, <clears throat> I was really starting to slowly suffocate and I was getting very little air um, you know, at the top of the ladder. And then slowly that continual feeling of that vortex that I was seeing in the car and that familiarity with it began to race to, to my inner being at some insane speed. Mm. Um, and I followed it. And then slowly I began noticing that my body was no longer, you know, working due to the deprivation of oxygen and every part of my body, uh, and just began shutting down. Like you take a power breaker in a home and just shut down each switch. And that was happening to my body. You know, one mm. switch at a time, uh, due to the de- deprivation of oxygen, uh, the last part that I recalled being aware of was being kind of outside my body and looking in at my brain and being able to notice different components of my brain and different functionings. And it's as if the statement is true that we use a very small percentage of our brain in our lifetimes. And certainly it's very hard to understand the brain with the brain, never mind being three years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, adults fully educated and stuff like that still are still finding new findings within the brain, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what program of neuroscience or neurosurgery you are in. Uh, but, um, you know, I noticed that due to the deprivation of oxygen, I felt a large cracking noise within my brain as if you take a, a plug out of a wall and just yank it out. And so I was unplugged from my body and my brain. And I just mm. heard this large snap. And then after that, that vortex just began just to quickly suck my body and not my body, but my inner being down this insane tunnel. And I was going at an infinite rate and infinite speed, you know, going upwards and upwards and upwards. And there was no limitation with how high and how far I was soaring. Mm. And slowly I just entered this. The best way I could describe it as cliche as it sounds was this uh, mystical light, uh, this quite familiar light, you know, and, I entered this place and as I was entering this, I began to notice the right side of, you know, the part of my brain that I was looking at from a third person out of body experience. And I began noticing this incredible mystical palace that I just almost had to shield myself away from because this palace's light was just so bright and Mm. I could hear vibrations, sounds, you know, choirs by it and angelic beings within it. And Most way I could describe it was just just an intimate connection, you know, with the all that ever is and ever was. It was to me just a connection with with the creator in a sense. And people have different experiences with the creator. I think um, it's it's all limiting. But I think you know when, you, when I was crossing over, it was just a very intimate connection to a high octave of the creator, you know, mm-hmm. presented to me in a way that I could comprehend and understand. Um, and so. Uh, as I was connecting to this, there was uh, an adjustment phase where I just, it was just too profound and too powerful to look at where I just almost had to shield myself from this familiarity. Mm-hmm. Slowly, I began to notice um, awareness of not necessarily Jesus Christ, the man depicted, 
you know, in pictures or, or in the Bible that people practice or uh, the, the worldview of Christ, but more of the interconnectivity to the consciousness of Jesus or consciousness of Christ. And in a way, um, that's very diametrically different than, you know, what other people say, because it's an interconnectivity. And hopefully we'll get into more QA on that, oh, yeah. the differentiating components. But, you know, when connecting to this, I was you know, feeling as scared as I possibly could, um, you know, in just terms of leaving my body behind, my life behind. And I just connected to this eternal wave of love, protection, guidance, support that was so beyond anything that I experienced, which isn't an octave to my culture or family. You know, it's just this high octave of unconditional love, mysticism, and high understanding of, mm-hmm. of the other side and this, this high awareness. And after connecting to that, I began to notice my two spiritual guides who are with me on the slide, on the top of the slide. And literally, I felt a male and female guide. At the time, I clearly knew who they were, what their names were, and I felt quite ashamed and embarrassed that I forgot their identity. It's just, hmm. you know, it's as if you just forgot to tie your shoes or you forgot your first name. It's just, you're just so close to your heart that I just forgot that they were with me this entire time. It just, I was just kind of, I had a blind spot on, you know, during those three years. And when hmm. I looked at them, they were the most magnificent beings. It wasn't you know, like clear audience or clear, you know, this was as if, you're a beautiful man, but looking at you right right here today, you know, it's just right in front of me, uh, but they were right to the side of me, and I was able hmm. to see them hmm. through my peripherals. And then slowly, they began to push my body through their own force down the slide, and my body was you know, irresponsive when my guides pushed me. And then slowly, hmm. I began to notice uh, all the people that I went to the park with that day, you know, calling my name, and I was just very irresponsive to them. And I was able to be aware of my, what I like to call my spiritual body or my soul body. And I was able to feel a form on the side of my body. And I was able Mm. to see all the people who were calling my name. But I felt almost kind of like a caged animal. Like I was trying to communicate to them. And, and, you know, they could see me, but they weren't seeing the true me. I could Mm. hear them, but they couldn't hear me. And it was quite torturous at the time. I wanted to grab them and saying, I'm okay. Are you? Because I'm, I'm you know, on the other side, I'm, you know, and, and this is terrific. And I'm, I never met more, I never felt more connected in this lifetime to my true essence than this moment. And, mm-hmm. uh, but they were calling my name and uh, they weren't responsive. And then in that moment, I was able to look at through my soul's eyes or mind's eyes and their energetic bodies or what we would call electromagnetic auric fields. And I was able to see a lot of components about the people that I went to the park that day that maybe I wasn't privy to or aware of at the moment, such as, you know, some of their purposes and, you know, even past lives. And, you know, I was able to see them not just from a face value human component from, but from a spiritual component. And I got a little bit more into that in life after breath with some of the specificities of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then instantaneously upon, you know, looking, you know, at them, I was able to be privy to just hundreds and thousands of angels that were hovering around my body and around the park. And these were not these big archangels necessarily. These were more of the cherubim type of angels. Within the background, I was aware of those larger angels. But in front of me, floating were these childlike angels. And they were kind of like brown and gold. And they were a lot less human in their characteristic and their affect than my spiritual guides. They were just 
you know, just looking in the direction and it's almost like I could see them, but they weren't so connected to me personally. They were more connected to the macro kind of energy, not just, not so much focus on the micro, you know, Mm -hmm. me. And so Mm -hmm. I was able to see them and I was just so blown away. And, you know, even my human part, I was still carrying over. I was just like, geez, am I, you know, making this up? Is this real? And it was literally a filter of an endless sea of angels that was right in front of me, you know, and then the distance I had awareness of the best term I could describe it for listeners. Um, And at the time I didn't have these terms, you know, this is kind of the terms that people have, you know, have to them, but to me terms are our ultimate superpower and just in terms of understanding, but they don't do justice or justification and it's full description. But I would say soul family members came to me in the distance and they solely started coming to me and instantaneously I, I knew who they were, what they were about. And it's just almost as if you feel an enmeshment of your close core of, of people that know you transparently inside, outside, front ways and back ways and vice versa. Mm. And, uh, you know, when they saw me and interacted with me, I felt quite embarrassed. And why I, why I use the word embarrassed is, um, you know, it's almost as if you have a party, you're going to the military and you have this big bash for like a week or two and you make all these promises and everyone's giving all these well wishes. And then within the week or two, you just come back and say, no, you know, not for me or something like that. So, you know, that wasn't their judgment of me. That was my own judgment. They Hmm. loved me for not what I did, but who I was. Um, And that's so much more diametrically different than, than this life as we know it for the most of us, ain't it? Yeah. Uh, After seeing them and my spiritual guides and, you know, connecting with, the higher divine energy I was posed a question with, which is what I was going to do uh, within this particular path. Was I going to stay, you know, cross over on the other side or, you know, was I continue to live, you know, uh, you know, this lifetime, you know, as three-year-old Jake, obviously, you know, different from this experience. And mm-hmm. you know, then I got kind of my, my lawyer business hat on and I said, well, if I do that, let's make a deal. What is this lifetime going to be? What am I going to experience? Why am I here? What's what's the point of it? For me to turn you guys down, I better have a better counter that will mm-hmm. outweigh it and have more capital than than heaven, if that's possible. Mm-hmm. And so I was being shown um, a life review, as I would best describe it, not only of this lifetime, uh, but what stuck to me was mostly, uh, you know, other past lifetimes. And it was as if I was going on an overlay of the planet. And I was able to just go from culture to culture, country to country, and, and have different, you know, glimpses and, and different filters of other lifetimes. And I was just spanning the globe, just traveling all different eras and time frames on an overlay of the earth. And the most recent lifetime that I had was when I had all these students that came to me and all these children that I just knew instantaneously, and they were given to me in flashing imagery. And I became quite emotional just in terms of the memories that I had and and just the relationship and the recollection of that last lifetime in which I committed suicide after feeling like my back was against the wall and there was no hope. And I was some type type of teacher for children. A lot of kids kind of depended on me. Mm -hmm. And I I took my own life in that last carnation um, from my back against the wall. I just felt very hopeless, very trapped. And there's nothing, there was no forward there was no path. It was um, nothing to get past the pylons. I was just very kind of mm-hmm. trapped. Um, you know, and then slowly I was able to see flashing imagery 
of this lifetime that I would live. And then I was able to see a crowd of people that I was speaking to. Uh, And when I saw that lifetime, it wasn't as if I was some guru or some superior to the people or some teacher that was better than the people, but rather I was just a part of the symphony of the message. I was just a part of everyone. It was just an interconnectedness of uplifting of energy of truth Mm -hmm. that was from that particular uh, imagery. And I said, at that time, you know, as, as beautiful as, you know, heaven is, um, you know, bringing it into this lifetime and, and, and living this path um, is, is bringing the hereafter into the here now. And um, I just turned it down. And then, you know, slowly I recognize, you know, feature glimpses of the earth and just in terms of you know, a lot of the chaos and darkness and divisiveness, uh, but, but through that darkness, uh, through the deprivation of it, I saw people coming into new form and changing, uh, which hopefully we'll get into because that's there's a lot of universality behind that from an individual to collective. It's all interconnected. And then slowly that's when everything powered down. Once I made that decision to to stay, uh, and I got a degree of, <clears throat> you know, cold feet or doubt as if like, what the heck did I just do? Like I just turned down that to come back to, you know, this, this earth. And I'm just like, Jesus, I was just like kicking myself. <laughs> I just, again, asked the question. I, I was, I've always a question kind of guy. And mm-hmm. I guess that kind of put me into the job as a therapist and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I, I love figuring out why the things are the way that they are and figuring out solutions to problems. And um, I just said, how do I know that this is going to th- happen? And, you know, they gave me one of the biggest superpowers, which is the power of thought, the power of perception and the power of path in the sense that the higher the vibratory your thoughts are, the more in symmetry they are, within flow, within the path. Mm. The more that your thoughts kind of are are in parallels with fear, kind of lower energy, the more in a sense that will kind of uh, take you off that path and put you on a lower vibratory path and a more difficult path, not necessarily relating to the series of events, but more in terms of your ability to be able to manage life circumstances. And then that's when everything shut down and I was left on a hospital bed you know, with my mother who was quite distraught. Um, and at the time, my mother told me that I was so angry that I kicked the doctor and ran around the room that I was, I was absolutely furious mm-hmm. um, in a sense that here I was turning down heaven and I was put in a, such a different vantage point from the other side in the light of it, you know, on a, on a cold hospital bed, you know, being operated on, you know, just, just depended on, you know, like a medical personnel. And, uh, you know, we'll get into that a little bit more because I think my book really talks about the psychosociological developmental angle from this profound experience at the age of three years old. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. There, there's so much I want to go into with, with that. Um, you know, first of all, I want to remind the, the, view, the listeners, the viewers, because it's going on YouTube and my podcast, you know, you were a th- you were three years old when you had this experience, which is very unusual. Um, it's interesting when you talk about the experience itself and even the time before, your memories of it are so detailed. And yeah. most of us don't remember anything before the age of like five. So one of the questions I know people that have these experiences early early in life is how could you possibly remember what happened? Mm-hmm. What I would say is certainly as a psychotherapist, I definitely you know, have professional capital and likes to stand down when it comes to understanding of trauma and how that works. 
uh, at least from my experience, there was, uh, I can't think of anything more traumatic than suffocating, you know, and, and dying, right? And so, you know, that's an experience, no matter how old or how young, has a capacity to stick with you. And when it comes to trauma, not only do you remember the actual event, but you, you have memories of the surrounding event, you know, the events that kind of came a little bit after and a little bit before, and that has to deal with trauma. You know, and also uh, there's the euphoric element of this experience where this defies all conventional wisdom. You're right. You know, in a sense, how do I remember things at, you know, at such a young age? And I'm no different than anyone else. I remember very little other than these incredible transformative experiences. Mm-hmm. When you're connecting to the other side, that goes against all logic within because it's not produced from this body. You know, it's filtered through the body and you're connected to a much higher realm that's eternal. It's not from the finite mind that's limited and it's, you know, recollection. It's not the conscious mind. You're connected to the subconscious eternal mind. And so that's in many ways how it stuck with me. And so Mm -hmm. if you watch the Netflix documentary, uh, Surviving Death, you'll see, I think at the last episode, they have um, an episode of like a child to remember his past lifetime as a pilot and, mm-hmm. you know, all the details and stuff like that. And so in the, I know the university of Virginia has a whole case study of, of children's past lives. And I know that's one of the prerequisites to become, you know, I guess like a Buddhist monk or stuff like that. You have to remember your, your last life. And so, you know, infants have a very uh, high capacity to remember their previous lifetimes that yeah. are not produced by this body. Right. So if that's possible, then certainly it would lay itself into the possibility of, of remembering, you know, parts from infancy and even, you know, you know, natal kind of periods and stuff yeah. like that. So that, it, yeah. you know, I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. That's that's an excellent answer. Maybe the best I've heard um, was from the describers. I also want to say that it's not unusual for, for children as young as two or three or even younger who have had these experiences, even infants, even, you know, Children before they even have language can remember them. Uh, Ingrid Hankala, who I've had on my show, and Ingrid had an experience when she was like two years old, and she remembers it in great detail. And I love what you said, though. But the thing is, the trauma can bring back memories, and and some people do have memories of not even near death experiences, but just anything, something traumatic that happened when they were at that age. So transformation. It, yeah, yeah it, it makes it makes sense, and I love. I'm, I'm glad that you gave that answer. And for anybody that's doubting that, I want to you know, and I, want, I wanted to put that out there. The other thing I noticed, though, that like even when you went to the other side, you know, the way you describe it, you seem to have a different level of consciousness than a three year old would have, you know, like the negotiations you made about coming back. And do you you feel like your consciousness shifted when you when you cross back over? Did you become like your your higher self, for lack of a better word? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm testing out a new feature. I'd love to get your feedback on it. It's called Fan Mail, and you can send me a message right from the show notes of the podcast. So look for the link that says send me a text. You can ask a question for a future podcast. You can suggest a guest or just give me any feedback you want. Just remember, it is one way I can't text you back, and I will not have your name, your email address, or your phone number unless you include it in the message. Let me know what you think. I would say that no infant or no child is how we perceive them, most of us, in a sense that we're not our bodies, we're not our ages, we're not numbers, we're not even our names. Um, And so 
to how people saw me or how probably the external portrayal of myself, you know, that probably wasn't in parallel. But when we look at an infant, we look at a child, there's the external portrayal, and then there's internal processing that happens that, you know, isn't communicated or isn't expressed. And so that was connected to not my necessarily two or three-year-old self, as normally I don't think any of us are at our core of that. You know, it was to the deeper waters of my soul that I was connected to, which was not bound by time, place, culture, anything like that. And so it was a lot more of an expanded awareness and connectivity to that. Uh, but I think in a way, um, the way that I could describe the soul is not the mind, not our worries, not our limitations, but rather the deep sacred observer beyond the surface. And that's always kind of there underneath the surface that can never leave us. And, you know, that's the part that I got and connected to. Uh, and that was always with me within this lifetime. The soul doesn't just all automatically change when we become 21, 22. In fact, a lot of people become a lot less, a lot more soulless than soulful at that age. And so yeah. infants, children probably, you know, have a lot more connectivity to that deeper part of them and are in a way almost kind of like Benjamin Buttons. There's an age reversal that happens where we physically grow up, integrate into this world, look more mature and could play the game better. But our true essence at times, you know, fades away. And so I look at children and infants as some of the higher souls and more aware souls are, are older than some 90 or 100 years old. Yeah, you know, in a way. That's we beautifully said. That. Yeah, that was beautifully said. And I completely agree. Uh, it reminds me, there, there's a song I love that talks about how we come into this world innocent and pure. And then it's called The Way of the World by Earth, Wind, and Fire. And, you know, it's a great I, song. I love <laughs> I that love song. <laughs> because I think it's just so true. We come in and we're pure and we're and we're innocent and, and then we learn to play the game the way you said it and we forget who we were. Um, it's interesting you got this this reminder, this reset at the age of three. I think that's another really thing that's unusual about um, about your experience. But thank you for that answer. Another thing about your your experience, you know, a lot of times again, people um, will say, well, when people have never experienced no death experience, they're just seeing it's just wish fulfillment. They're seeing what they expect. It's what they're culturally expected to, to, to see. So when I read in your book, and I want to read a short passage from one of the chapters, you said that you that you perceived Jesus. You said you didn't see Jesus, but you perceived Jesus, if I, if I remember correctly. It's more of like a hearing and inner knowing. And yeah. It's funny because I, I grew up, you know, in a religious, traditional community, went to Hebrew school, all that stuff, mm-hmm. followed all the rules and, you know, modern Orthodox, you know, Jewish kid. Jesus was born a Jew and died a Jew. He's probably more Jewish than, than I myself am. You know, he was in Israel, right? And mm-hmm. stuff like that. So, it, but in my lifetime, that wasn't something that was, I was exposed to. Right. And I certainly understand within Jewish tradition, there's a lot of pushback, not necessarily from Jesus himself, but what came after him through the crusades and, you know, attacks on Jews. And so I could understand how a lot of people, you know, misinterpreted the message and used it as violence. And Mm -hmm. that couldn't be more diametrically opposite to the life that Jesus stood for, Mm -hmm. you know, so I could understand that. So from seeing that, it was just a whirlwind of difference from the culture environment that I was exposed to at that young age. Yeah. you know, and so it would make sense for me to see more so Moses in a, sh- you know, in a staff or, exactly. um, 
Joseph or someone else from Genesis or, right. or the right. Old Testament. As much cultural conditioning as you could have at the age of three, you would expect that. And so I, I do want to read this passage. I think it's beautiful. You said, I understood that Jesus was the closest depiction of man and God, higher consciousness form than we can comprehend, that we can comprehend. In that moment, I was conscious of his desire to spread loving messages and not to focus on the ending of his life, but rather on his love of service, forgiving his neighbors and bringing heaven down to earth through his own sacrifice and trials and tribulations. I was aware that his life was in all of us and that we have the capacity to embody elements of him within each and every one of our journeys. For he's an undeniable part of ourselves, one that is always with us, even if we at times lose sight of it. I thought that that was beautiful. And it's actually a project I've been thinking about doing. Where I wanted to ask people, what does Jesus mean to you? And I, I, if you don't mind, I would love to include that, you know, when I do this project. I think that's a beautiful synopsis of, of Jesus, who, who the Christ is. Please do. And I don't mean to have a monopolization of heaven or God. Mm-hmm. I was just some kid who had this experience at a young age, and I had a small taste of it. But I look at my everyday experience as a way to come closer to understanding. I think if truth becomes stagnant, it turns into religion. But the truth becomes open-ended and exploratory. It's more goes the lines of, of spirituality. And that's more the beginner's mind, Buddhist kind of mentality, where the master's mind is the mind who knows, who's, who's open, you know, and not defined by what they know and experience. But certainly... You know, a lot of people say, is Jesus God? Is God God? What's this? What's that? I say, you know, we're all expressions of that, but but different figures throughout history have a higher octave, a higher vibration of that, that we're not meant to put on a pedestal, but rather learning to integrate and to learn that that is possible within our lifetimes. And, you know, to be reminded of the possibility to reach in deeper gears uh, that are a lot more than how we perceive ourselves but more reflective of what's in ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, and another thing I want to touch on in, in terms of your experience, um, the, again, we, we talked before we got started because the experience itself is, is fantastic. It's interesting. But what are the lessons? And one of the other lessons I saw, and you, you point this out when you talk about the experience, is that you said you felt a little bit embarrassed that you'd already forgotten your guides, but they were always with us. And so I think a lot of times us as adults, you know, we, we forget our guides are with us. So what would you say to people who let's say, you know, I, I do I have guides? Yeah. You know, if anyone's interested too, I have monthly events on Facebook Live. And one of the topics that's going to be coming, it's the last Monday of each month, you know, and it's open for the community. And down the road, one of the specific topics on my professional page is spiritual guides. What I would say is a lot of people, if they don't get every single mark checked off, right, in terms of their guides, they listen to a lot of people talk and they'll be able to talk about not only their guides, but their guides, past life, their guides, mothers, their, their guides, spirituality, you know, and then they'll feel like, oh, that's what these people are experiencing. And I'm just, you know, having what I'm having. So it's disvalidated. Mm-hmm. What I would say is, you know, each experience is unique and each experience is a part of your own dosage of reawakening. Cause I think we're truly all awakened. It's just about the integration of that. And so Ultimately, I don't connect to my guides daily. Sometimes I even question their names, which is why I don't put in the book. Hmm. But but that doesn't mean that you can't connect to them in your own special way, that you can't have a dialogue. And I look at meditation as a great intimacy with with your guides and the other side. You know, you're able to get into the sacred silence and feel, 
you know, those beings around you and you're in enhancing your energy, your vibration so that their vibration could match yours. When you're feeling very stuck, closed, closed head, closed heart, it's very hard for flow of energy to come into you. But I think certainly everyone has spiritual guides. We're born with them. They know us before this lifetime in the charting phase. And so they never leave us. We just at times leave them. I think a lot of that has to do with A, the fact that we feel unworthy to have these beings who invest in us so much, who care about us so much. It's not mm. self-aggrandizing to think that. Mm. But I think also the illusion that isolation that people have, where when we feel pain, we feel that we're just, you know, pain could lead us on an illusionary path that we're isolated and, you know, we're, we're, we're in internal suffering just alone. And one thing that I truly learned, and I talk a little bit more about this in my second book, which is more of direct implicative lessons of the here now, the hereafter that the here now is just that illusionary sensation of being alone and how mm-hmm. we could have that state of mind, but the state of reality presents itself a little bit differently that we're always surrounded and guided and protected. We just not always are aware of that. We'll get back to grief to growth in just a few seconds. Did you know that Brian is an author and a life coach? If you're grieving or know someone who is grieving, his book, Grief to Growth, is a best-selling, easy-to-read book that might help you or someone you know. People work with Brian as a life coach to break through barriers and live their best lives. You can find out more about Brian and what he offers at www.grieftogrowth.com, www.grief2growth.com, or text GROWTH, G-R-O-W-T-H, to 31996. If you'd like to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash grief to growth, www.patreon.com slash G-R-I-E-F, the number two, G-R-O-W-T-H, to make a financial contribution. And now, back to grief to growth. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you talked about that being alone. I, I uh, There's a young man, his name is Roland Chenjang, and he wrote a book. Uh, who, we, who and why we are. And one of the things he said in his book is like, one of the things we agree when we come into this life is we agree to this feeling of abandonment, which seems to be universal, that we all feel alone on some level at some point. Um, so it's, it's an interesting thing that you talked about. Even, even at three years old, you know, you had already forgotten that you were, that you were never alone. Even at then, so I could understand how adults forget. Mm-hmm. Even at three years old, you know, starting to fall asleep at the wheel a little bit right and just having a little bit of amnesia of that so um sure i can understand how adults are are doing that but there's so much symmetry with what's happening on a macro and micro basis to to my experience Mm -hmm. in a sense that you know from a young age at three years old i had an upper respiratory highly contagious virus called pertussis you know or whipping cough and Mm -hmm. that caused me to suffocate and hence the title life after breath, I suffocated. And there was uh, an eternal life past the limited breath within the body. There was eternal breath of the spirit. There's eternal life of the spirit that I was able to remember. And mm-hmm. I think impermanence is blown into our face a lot more these days with the macro upper respiratory virus that's happening today. And a lot of people are feeling you know, just just very uncertain about their lives. And a lot of people in many ways feel breathless and they've got nothing to hold on to. They're grasping for straws in the outer world. 
because it's that rug has been pulled. And so for people to not only just survive or thrive, people now need to find different gears that they may not have turned from you know prior comfort. And so I think this time has posed people to kind of expedite um, some of their storehouses of inner truth in their own backyard to come out more, you know, as the outer stimuli is is more enhanced and, you know, and, and thrown away a little bit more these days. Yeah, absolutely. So um, another thing I wanted to ask you, you know, you had this experience at three years old and a lot of times when people have near-death experiences, almost always they, it takes some integration to get, to kind of readjust once they come back. Yeah. For adults, that can be seven to 14 years. For children, it could be 20 to 30 years. Yeah. You're you're only 30 years old now. So how do you feel that you how did this experience impact your your growing up and how are you integrating it now? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi there, I'm really excited to tell you about my latest ebook. It's four lessons that you can learn from the near-death experience without going through all the trouble of dying to learn them. I've been studying NDEs for several years now. I am completely convinced that not only are they 100% real, but that there's some very universal wisdom that we can get from the near-death experience. And I've distilled that down in this book into four short lessons. And I've also given you all the reasons why I believe the NDEs are absolutely real. So go to www.grieftogrowth.com slash NDE lessons to pick it up for free www.grief2growth.com slash NDE lessons. I hope you enjoy it. You know, I view everything as a blessing, but looking back on it, it was certainly had a, you know, just, just pure fact, it was a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very allegorical with the near-death experience in the sense that they're in order to see the the light, I had to see some of the dark and the suffocation to really remind myself of the light. It's hard to see the light at times without the, the dark. It's hard, mm. it's hard to remind ourselves of the infinite without its opposite of the finite. And I had the most direct connection with finite suffering and suffocation, the most you know connectivity with with infinite through eternal breath, through you know understanding eternity. But I would say. Matter of fact, I grew up in a home, you know, four children. My parents were more so in the here now than the hereafter. They were hardworking people. My father was a psychotherapist. But out of all the four children, we all had the same food, the same environment, the same classes. You could ask anyone who knew the the, the family. I was by far the most difficult child. I was a PIA, you know, to them <laughs> uh, from ever since that experience. Um, and I think that has a lot of layers to it. I think obviously mm-hmm. the trauma that happened, you know, as well as the inner rebel that was born in me, you know, that in a sense that I wasn't programmed on this kind of mechanism, you know, that, that kids were kind of put on, but we're just kind of taught that we're blank slates and the parents had authoritative figure, you know, were authoritative figures and mm-hmm. teachers were, and we just put, you know, our lives in other people's hands. And I was, very defiant and oppositional in a sense that it wasn't able to be expressed at the time, but a part of me could no longer be able to play the game as other people saw me. I saw myself as a lot older and a lot kind of wiser than some of the mature adults who were just trying to reel me in. And so I was very defiant and combine that with the strict traditional, you know, 
religion that had a monopolization of God that tried to program that into my head that was very much um, God and man's image, a God of very much this world that was Mm -hmm. kind of portrayed. It was very hard for me. Uh, And so I had years of therapy. I had a very difficult time from purely, you know, physiological standpoints, you know, suffocating, having my brain deprived of oxygen. You know, my brain was much different and I was a lot more comfortable in that realm than this, in this realm. But ultimately to survive at the time, I had to push away heaven, but later in life to thrive, I had to learn how to integrate it. Wow. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was, again, beautifully stated, I think. You know, it, it's interesting because you, we, we talked about earlier about we come in and we have to learn to play to play the game. But when you get that that reset that you got at like the age of three, and, and I know Ingrid went through the same thing, Ingrid Heinkel, I, I mentioned earlier, she would look at adults and it's like, I'm the same as you are. She was two years old. And they're like, you know, she even she rejected her name. She said, that's not my name. Right. And people would look at her and it's like, yeah, what's what's going on with this little girl? So I, I love that you include that in, in your story in the book that, you know, it, it's it's not all sunshine and roses. And sometimes people from the outside will look at a near-death experience and say, oh, I wish I could have a near-death experience because it's such it's such a great thing. But it it does come with um, uh, with a price. Sure. I mean, I, I I was a very, in my book, I talk about this many years, very struggled within School systems, I would fight it. And even if I tried, I couldn't really focus because my head was, my brain chemistry was changed from that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I had a very hard time. And so, you know, through therapy and through taking medication, all this kind of stuff it helped me out. But it wasn't until I would say my early 20s when I, like you said, the 20, 30 year period where I was able to kind of crack in and being able to understand it, you know, on a deeper level, an internal perspective, I knew what was going on, but to be able to ground the here after into the here now, yeah. that's something that takes a whole lifetime, but to yeah. crack the surface on that, I, I, I started, I rebegan that process probably in my early twenties when I had kind of like a holistic spiritual awakening that had many different kind of experiences. And I know my book, you know, part of that was an out of body experience and, training in different kind of energy principles. And I think ultimately it was, it was one of the gifts of suffering, you know, with, with the life that I was living and just the uncertainty of where I was going. And so to remember where I wanted to go, I had to truly remember who I was because ultimately if I didn't know who I was, I could be anybody. If I didn't know where I came from, I could be going anywhere. So Mm -hmm. ultimately it's the uncertainty that tried to, um, get me to come to grips with more allies of certainty within that time frame. I wanted to ask you um, about how you feel about like soul planning. You mentioned earlier when you were, when you had this experience, when you were three, you saw kind of like your soul group, I think you said around you. And as I was reading your book, there are a couple of people that came in your life uh, or that were played key roles around, like your aunt seal. Um, and I wonder how you feel about her. And then there was Armana, the woman that you, that you'd seen. I don't remember what time frame it was where you saw Armana, the, the psychic. But as I was around reading that, that, I'm sorry? Around that time frame, you know, we, we still keep in touch, her and I. Yeah, and I'm and I'm like, so I think there are people in our lives, and I'm going to ask you this as a qu- informal question. Do you feel like there are people in our lives that are just like, they come along at the right moment and give us what we need? Absolutely. I think Brian Weiss says that angels just aren't these beings on the other side. They come in human form too, in, in animal form too, in, in disguise. And mm-hmm. 
I think, you know, Dr. Brian Weiss is very accurate in that. And, and I think part of the gain of living this lifetime is through these experiences with other people. Not only do they help us to see much more of how we think we are and who we truly are, but in a sense that they're almost, you know, some, sometimes I think in a way this lifetime is very much a school, not to be punished, you know, stuff like that, but to have an opportunity. And I think in many ways that opportunity is to be there of service, to, to learn what it's like to be a guide here so that we could be a guide when we cross over a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to run a marathon without running a couple of laps beforehand. I think this is a practice to get to that point. So Yeah. So so talk about like, the, for example, your aunt Seal, her, her influence on, on, on your on your life or how how she influenced you yeah she was actually um it's funny her life had a lot of allegory to it she um was a singer Feliz navidad was it like jose feliciano something like that mm-hmm. so yeah i think he had like vision impairments my aunt seal was actually his teacher um mm-hmm. and she taught those with visual impairments you know in the queen's school system um and that was allegorical for life that she lived she was we grew up in this Jewish tradition, but she was very much into Kabbalistic teachings and Jewish mysticisms and Sylvia Brown and all these other people. And so mm-hmm. she she believed in people to be able to see what they couldn't see, to to to, to trust in this kind of unseen world. And so she allowed mm-hmm. those who were blind to be able to see other parts of them. And at her funeral, there was all these people who had vision impairments and were blind, and they were just hysterically crying. And I think you know, when a part of us isn't necessarily connected to as much, a lot more times people are more in tune to their emotional parts and and other parts of their sensitivities are a little bit stronger. So it's just so profound to see the impact that she had. But that's just the person that she was. And so she was very much a guide to not only myself, but to hundreds of students mm-hmm. to be able, on a practical basis, you know, to learn how to integrate into this world with not being able to see, but to, but to trust in you know, these, these other components to ourselves. And to me, at least, she was very much a mentor, you know, in terms of giving me all these reading assignments to kind of get me to, to be able to see when at times I might have suppressed vision, you know, of, of these own realities you mm-hmm. know, and just kind of bog that down kind of like a beach ball in a pool. Right. So she was a profound and still is a profound guide and teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, like I said, I, 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 I was impressed by her um, impact in life and also Armana, the, the, the psyche that you saw, which I thought was also interesting because, as you said, being raised a traditional uh, Orthodox Jew, we don't, I, I just had someone on the other day that she was, she's Jewish, like we don't see psychics. So but, the fact that you would you know, even. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's starting to change a little bit, you know, especially as um, science is catching up. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know wonderful organizations such as let's just say forever family foundation is coming up you know, with all these, you know, tested mediums and scientific tested mediums. So I think science and, you know, the afterlife are really working more in harmony, but I think really truly with the amount of pain that people are going through, I think all religions are being a little bit more, uh, in some degree, a little bit more flexible, you know, where if it's resourceful, if it's helpful, I think, you know, in this, in this time frame. You know, then in a sense, you know, kind of like removing some stuff that we've believed in the past, you know, if it's resourceful. But there's a little bit more bend that I'm starting to notice within people practice religion to kind of tap into a little bit more of the spirituality. And I know I say the hereafter exists not because of religion, but despite of it, right? So, um, you know, spirituality exists because of not despite of too. But um, Armano was, was interesting because she... 
I went to her, you know, and most people would say, okay, if you see a neon light sign on and you see this, the storefront, don't go there. Exactly. And that's true. I think 85% of these people are just kind of storefronts and just kind of charlatans mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, but she was so much different. I've gotten readings from some of the best and she was by far one of the very best, you know, intuitives that I've ever had. And, and since she, you know, tapped into, she just saw through me everything that I had, including that past lifetime that I connected to. Mm-hmm. That was like the first time that someone had that because I had this recollection of my near-death experience, but I was haunted in my childhood out of that suicide that I had and experienced. And she, without me getting public, this is before I started lecturing, which was in 2015, 2016. This must have been a couple of years before that, that she tapped into that. And it was just like, and so it was very validating, mm-hmm. you know, from understanding the soul's purpose and to understanding that, you know, wow, that other people are able to tap into this stuff. You know, I'm not just alone in this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and the thing is, you, as you said, and I kind of smile when you said, you know, we do, we see these storefront psychics and we're like, they're all fake and, and maybe most of them are, but there are definitely, you know, real people out there as well. And, and when we come across them, <laughs> they blow our minds, you know, they, they completely change our worlds. Yeah, you know, and I think anyway, anyone could come out and saing that I'm a life coach, I'm a psychic. There's no kind of overlying governing a body to, right. to determine that. I think now there's added a lot more credibility where we're having evidential mediums, evidential intuitives going through a ringer, of, you know, of tested. I know Gary Schwartz runs different programs mm-hmm. and Dr. Gary Schwartz runs different programs. And I know Harvard has different programs to kind of test, you know, these evidential mediums and intuitives. I think that's very important because... I'm sure you could agree to this. When we're most vulnerable, we have to be the most privy to with who we give our vulnerability to. We have to be careful with who we place our grief in the hands of. Many people could say, and we read New York Times stories of people getting kind of conned with all these kind of psychics when we're most vulnerable, we're looking for answers, we're we're thirsty for any given answers. And people will say, okay, you do this, I'll pay me $100,000, I'll clear energy field and I'll light these candles and I'll bring forward your loved ones. And, you know, so, Mm -hmm. you know, when we're desperate, you know, never go to the grocery store when we're hungry, never go on a date when we're lonely. And certainly we never go to someone who's not credible when we're feeling, you know, intensified grief, you know, from a therapist or medium perspective. So, yeah, great. That was, that was again, so well said because um, one of the criticisms and I've I've worked with a lot of mediums and I've interviewed a lot of mediums and I I know a lot of mediums and most of them are great people. The ones I know, I've been very fortunate. They're very spiritual people. They want to help people. But one of the criticisms is they're all spiritual vampires and they, they they just suck on your grief. And those people are certainly out there, but we do have to be discerning. As you were saying, we need to, we need to, you know, to get recommendations, validations as much as we can. Um, I personally would never just go to, you know, someone that just, out of the yellow, yellow pages. That's yeah, they, that dates trust, me, but but you have to trust your gut, sure. And I know, yeah. like, let's say Bob Olson, who's got a book two out there, a book or two out there, but he's got a psychic directory that goes through his own testing too. And I know mm-hmm. on my website, I have, and again, I'm not a paranormal researcher, but I have you know a couple of evidential mediums and psychics, you know, up there, you know, for people as resources too, if people are interested, uh, you know, in getting readings that I refer. You know, let's say I'm working with a client as a therapist and they're just kind of hitting a wall with the grief. You know, there's nothing that I could do or say to them, you know, in a way that would expedite the amount of healing that someone with evidential information has. In a way. And I think, you know, it's important to see a therapist to work on, you know, the ground up perspective, but at times getting that 
evidential understanding doesn't change the line of events, but it causes, you know, grief to formulate its way onto belief, you know, which is a great transition for people, you know, to, you know, start, you know, in a way the healing, which has no true timetable in a way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what you said there also, I think was really interesting about like, you know, seeing a therapist and seeing a medium, for example, um, there's a place for, for both. And, and they, they each serve, you know, different roles, getting a great medium reading can be extremely healing, you know, and, and that's one thing that people, because even as therapists, you know, as, as grief counselors in, in the past, the, the, the model was your, your loved one is gone, get over it. Let's, let's adjust to life without them. But you mentioned forever family foundation. I work with an organization called helping parents heal. And that's, that's and, another, yeah. And more now it's, and even in grief therapy, now they're saying, well, maybe we should look at continuing bonds. Let's, mm-hmm. let's really look at the, the fact that that person is still here, that we can still have a relationship with them. Let's understand who we are as human beings, that we're not just, you know, these biological accidental robots that we, as you said, we come from some place and we have some place to go back to. And that seems to be a lot more healing for people than this idea of just, you know, just get over it and move on. Yeah. I think AA was was very groundbreaking and bring sp- spiritual psychotherapy, you know, it, you know, into the game just in terms of, you know, the steps and serenity prayer, and so that kind of infiltrated itself into psychotherapy, you know, and then you know mindfulness came in, you know, CBD came in, and so I think you know in a way you know holistic spiritual psychotherapy is now you know, seen as a lot more inter- interdisciplinary. And so, and when I work in private practice and work for, let's say a clinic, we don't just see a client, we work on the medical, we work, you know, with recovery oriented coaches, we work, you know, and I facilitate around, you know, three mindfulness groups per week. So I think the more resources that we're able to give people and checking our egos out at the door, I think we're able to understand the person as a holistic being as, you know, much more than just one dimensional, not the, the multidimensional and being able to not limit them with, with resources, you know, at, at hand. I think that's yeah. the place to go from. So you, you work as um, you're a Reiki, you're a certified hypnotherapist, you're a certified Reiki master, you're a clinical social worker, uh, and you specialize in, in uh, past life regression. So how do you integrate this into your, into your practice when, when you're seeing clients? You know, a key tenant within psychotherapy and social work 101 is learning how to meet the client where their feet are at and mm-hmm. entering their world. And for a lot of people, that's a very vulnerable position, you know, to take yourself out of the equation and to enter someone's world. But in the way, you know, that's how people are very much helped, you know, because they're feeling very alone. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in the way it's a lot of bit about it is understanding. And so the person's here and you're looking up at them, not always down on them, you know, or just kind of seeing them as a pathologized diagnosis and stuff like that, but rather as a comprehensive, mm-hmm. resilient, you know, strong person that you're trying to develop self-efficacy and uh, enhance superpowers of resilience in the face of adversity and learning ways to integrate them. And so through private practice, you know, there's assessment phases that I'll do where I don't accept every client, not every client is appropriate. You know, for services, some would be better suited with other clinicians or other modalities of treatment. Uh, but at least within private practice, there's a lot more autonomy that I have where someone comes into me, you know, and collaboratively, we kind of discuss, okay, maybe starting with, 
know, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy or some of my other services, mindfulness, you know, based services or consciousness consulting. And if other people, they've tried all those modalities and they're just hitting the wall, but that's when maybe working with subconscious mind might be helpful with hypnosis uh, or, you know, something that I do within groups and individuals as, as past life regression therapy is, is quite resourceful, mm. you know, in a sense that I ultimately think that we're here to evolve, you know, our souls as Darwin talked about evolution of the body. I think it's no different within the souls. And so it's very hard for people because the number one pe- question that people has is why am I here? What's my purpose? You know, so much of who we are is based on kind of the clouded layers of built up perception that other people have put on us, which has looked at us as a blank slate. And so we've internalized that viewpoint, you know, in, in our perception, how we see ourselves. And ultimately, I think we act on based on how we're informed of the world, how we are informed of God will impact how we handle this lifetime. And it's, it's a mirror reciprocal dynamic. And as we expand that viewpoint, so to our life's purpose expands. And I, I view past life regression as a great way to really expand consciousness, to expand awareness, to be able to understand a lot more of not what we are, but who we truly are. So that we're yeah. able to go through life with more grace and ease and, uh, and guidance within our lives. This may not be a fair question, but you know, people. Bring it on. I've heard people ask. Well, I, I, I sometimes we ask people whether they have an experience like they know everything. But I'm going to ask you anyway. So you know, we obviously you believe in reincarnation. You believe that that we we come here more than once. So what's why don't we we remember our past lives? I mean, we, you you talk about past life regression, yeah. and, I, and I know people that do it. I know people that have done it. And they say it's extremely helpful. Um, so what's the, what's the deal with the forgetfulness? I think there's great beauty in the journey. You know, the journey is never ending. You know, sometimes within the journey, you know, we have a knowing that comes to us directly, you know, and sometimes we just have to trudge along with faith, you know, and entrust in it. Ultimately, you know, if everything was so clear, then why would we be here on earth? I think we come here, you know, and in many ways, it's, it's polarity to just the clear knowing, you know, in the mm-hmm. sense that this earth is, you know, there, there's darkness. There's a lot of times where we don't have all those higher sensory uh, awakenings of awareness, full, full, full force. And I think so much of that is, you know, well, you know, how could we possibly evolve without challenges presented our way? You know, it's very hard for us to have a bicep curl and not feel that bit of pain or that hurt. But at the end of the day, you know, that is a direct correlationship. And I view pain and gain as a great, great and late Betty Wright would say, right? You know, no pain, no gain mm-hmm. uh, is very much correlated, you know? Um, and I don't view that as a punishment or a prison sentence. So I don't necessarily hear, think we're here to, to acquire, but rather to re-remember or reintegrate what's truly inside of ourselves. And I think ultimately that's a lot of the soul's purpose isn't and becoming something or someone else that we're not, but learning ways to re-remember that, re-experience that, and reintegrate that. And so that's a very versatile concept. And so in the face of my experience, let's just say, when you have finite challenges, such as suffocation presented your way, you know, when you have nothing to hold on to, when you looked at darkness, when you lose a loved one, and, you know, everything tells you that this is the end, 
And for people, we understand the correlationship with that degree of suffering and that degree of change and evolution. You know, it's very hard to meet someone who hasn't gone through, you know, transformation without, you know, being that phoenix out of the ashes, so to mm-hmm. speak. So I think that's very much something that no one's immune from, uh, just in terms of the challenges. But I think if it was all clearly in front of us, you know, then where would the free will come into play? When would the decision come into play? And when would this journey come into play that we're all here to continue to stay a part of, which at times that, that journey is very clear. And other times we're like, what the hell is going on? But to continue to stay on course, you know, is, is a part of our evolution, a part of our strength and a part of this human experience. And there's no one who's got full clarity at all times. Sometimes, you know, at times there's clouds and sometimes we see the sun coming in through, but I think reminding ourselves the sun is always there. The truth is always there despite some of those blockages where we might trust in that. So I think a lot of this is being able to entrust in uh, faith, knowingness, you know, and in, in, in the higher forces of spiritual guidance over our own limited viewpoint. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. when we're able to be a lot more resilient and uh, evolve quicker. Yeah. So. Yeah. Great answer. Very, very well said. You know, I think it's, you know, I think it's the, the, the pain and the forgetfulness and all it's, it's all part of the, the thing we set up for ourselves. And as you, as you said earlier, I use, I use the gym analogy. I use the obstacle course analogy. I'm like this, 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 our life is kind of like an obstacle course, which wouldn't be much of an obstacle course if there were no obstacles. You know, right. if you just, if you just ran from point A to point B and there was nothing in between that would, that would kind of suck as an obstacle course. So right. I think we set these challenges out for ourselves. Right. And, and, you know, and ultimately, I think a lot of things are charted for us because, you know, when we cross over, you know, part of it is each lifetime, I think, makes this more is more of an opportunity to be able to integrate that inner part of ourselves within each lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so I think from losing ourselves, we're able to refine ourselves and from loss, from pain we lose that part of ourselves where we regain a different part of ourselves. And so I think in the way there's, there's always lessons that are there for each and every one of us. And it's ultimately lessons are no longer needed to be repeated from those greater messages being embraced. And I think once those messages are being embraced and heard, we're able to really ascend travel into upper stratospheres of evolutions of our soul's growth within each and every lifetime. But again, again, perception is reality. We could see this as, you know, you know, a victimization, we could see this as, you know, a punishment or purgatory, you know, this, this earth plane, or it's very easy to see that, or, you know, I try to take the high road on a personal professional basis where I see this as, you know, an opportunity of finite challenges with infinite consequences and measures. Mm, wow. Beautiful. So wow. I think all these things are the power that we give themselves power to, but if this body, this lifetime is all impermanent. Now what we take from that, what we extract to that has infinite potentiality and so i think when we give more power to the infinite there's more power to the finite we're starting to get on track towards you know really kind of evolving within our lifetimes and know that happened to myself and other near-death experiencers mm-hmm. and other people who with with intense loss and intense transformation ultimately we don't uh really go through those moments without understanding where we give our energy to and i think it's ultimately giving our energy to resilient and infinite over the finite challenges presented in ourselves in front of ourselves. Yeah. Another concept I want to ask you about, um, 
is is that concept of karma because that, that comes up a lot as we karma as we talk about these you know experiences and so when i i hear about your your past life where you were a teacher which and you're a teacher now and you you felt like you let your students down i believe um, and that, that caused you some trauma in this life so how, do you think karma plays into that and, and what's your what's your view of karma yeah, you know, I don't think it's a punishment. I think um, in a way it's an opportunity. I think um, in a way from completion we begin, we enter different bodies with with different structures, but those similar moves on the chessboard are kind of similar. Hmm. And the more skillful we get, right, within each lifetime, the better their chess moves will make, much like that movie, The Queen's Gambit. And uh, I don't, you can see this many ways, but I kind of view this as the more skillful we get, the better moves we'll make and the more, you know, we'll be able to really ascend, you know, the board. Um, I, I kind of see, at least from my lifetime, I look at the near-death experience and, and that the past life recollection as, as all kind of intertwined in one, in a sense that ultimately we're, we're, we're here to trust what's inside of us a lot more than the challenge in front of us. And when I certainly committed suicide and others who have had suicidal ideations or attempts. Um, and those who committed suicide, from my understanding, we're not condemned, we're not judged. It's, we go to the other side, it's it's totally diametrically opposite than uh, love as we know it or as a treatment that we get here. It's, mm-hmm. you know, in the spirit of St. Valentine's Day a day ago, it's it's an ever-ending love. It's, it's a love that has no limits or bounds. And it's a love that doesn't love you from what you do, but who you truly are. Because to not love yourself if we are indeed a part of God would be to condemn or not love the source from which it came from. Right. How was that possible? So I think, um, you know, at at our core, we we are here to remember that part of ourselves, but, you know, I I think um, the suicide in a sense that I, I was able to remind myself from was just that allegorical reference of the light at the end of the tunnel, where no matter what we're going through, uh, we have to be, privy to and careful with where we give our power to we give our power to our own limited perception of reality our own anxieties our own fears that feel very much real that could take us on a wild course of its own now versus the clear understanding that we can never be hurt nor damaged by almost anything even if it seems that way that there's an eternal vessel within ourselves Mm -hmm. and if we're able to have that as a hallmark part of our true foundation you know then truly we're able to have a lot more resilience in the face of challenges through grace and ease, through that understanding. And I think ultimately it's when people, once people see themselves as more than their emotions, more than their body, but as an infinite soul, you know, that's when they're a lot more capable of, of handling challenges. It doesn't mean that we're not uh, challenged. It doesn't mean that we're not off kiltered, you know, no one's immune from that, but it means that we're able to pivot a little bit easier. And I think that's when, you know, mindfulness comes into play, not so much, you know, in judging ourselves, we're not perfect, but when we observe ourselves getting off base and be able to recenter, um, you know, and just reset, you know, a little bit more um, within Mm -hmm. our lifetimes. Yeah, I think there's, um, I've talked to people who have, you know, practiced these two religions. I think there's a big misunderstanding about karma that we need to reframe and what I heard you saying um, is kind of like, it's almost like a chance to do it again. It's like, it's not a punishment. It's like, yeah, go back and you have to do this again. It's more like, Oh, okay. I think I, maybe I could do this a little bit better. So I'll, I'll do similar circumstances and, and, you know, hopefully do better. And so it's interesting that you were, you know, were teacher in this most recent life. And then this is what you're doing now um, from, 
it seems like to me a more skillful position. I try, you know, and yeah. I talk about very vulnerable, you know, and a lot of near-death experiences go through this, you know, in the book, I had some degrees of suicidal ideations mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And thankfully, you know, my father as a therapist was able to help me. So again, still some of that came to the forefront mm-hmm. um, and still working with clients, you know, who were high, you know, clients who came from the hospitals with suicidal ideations and suicide attempts. So from personal and professional, that's just something that, you know, I, I agreed to contract with. And, yeah. you know, I think ultimately, you know, I think it's getting people a little bit more tools and a little bit more resilience and a little bit more support, uh, you know, around them. But I think I look at, um, you know, spirituality as a great superpower in the face of challenges, you know, in a sense that you're able to feel sense and know a lot more around you, you know, than, than you might be limited within your own emotional mind or your own, you know, analytical mind that might drive you down a deep hole. And so I think you're able to surrender yourself to a lot more of a greater belief system and energy, even if it feels like it's fantasy, it does help you out. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, we're recording, we're recording this on February 15th, 2021. Uh, we are hopefully coming to the end of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, but people around the world, you know, we're, we're in all kinds of fear. We're in grief. What what are some lessons that people can take from your experience that we can apply to what we're going through right now? Absolutely. Once we think it's the end, it's not. You know, the end is the greatest illusion. And that is produced by the linear mind, which mm-hmm. is function from beginning to end. That's how it works. That's how it operates. It's linear. There's a start, there's an ending. And that's true of this body. That's true of this lifetime. There's an impermanence. But I think what people have to bear in mind is how illusionary that is and how that our true nature past the mind is an eternal soul that can never be truly hurt nor damaged. And I think truly, ultimately, you know, everyone who's here alive obviously deserves a medal in a way from still being here because these are very challenging times. Ultimately, these are not most challenging times we've ever had, but I think for most of us within this lifetime, this, this has been, but I think Perception is a great reality and seeing this mm. as a reminder of how strong we truly are. Otherwise, we truly wouldn't be here. There's nothing that we would be provided to that we couldn't truly handle. And knowing that in this age, we don't have to do it all alone. I think within many cultures, the Mr. Mrs. Atlas is very much highlighted. But I think that's very illusionary for who and what we truly are, in a sense that we have support systems on this earth planes and those in the satellites in the heavens. And I think it's being able to at times more feeling that we can't do it to be able to surrender ourselves, to carry ourselves, you know, to propel ourselves through these times. And I think ultimately um, there's great growth in that because once we think we could do it all, there's no need for, for change or transformation. And so we could get a little bit stagnant with that, you know, Mr. Atlas kind of identity. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think the second part is, um, you know, the ability to, like we said before, to understand the griefs, uh, the the um, the hallmarks of challenges in its relationship with evolution. You know, it's very hard to see someone who's that strong person that we see on the surface who hasn't gone through a lot of you-know-what, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so that doesn't come without cause. You know, everything, there's a ripple effect with every thing that we see, you know, there's so much more than the surface. And I think ultimately, 
the more objective that we're able to see ourselves past this moment and the more understanding that we are able to understand from these particular moments that led to, from infinite struggle led to finite gains and measures, I think is important too. Um, you know, and I think also it's important to understand the value of it's okay to not be okay. You know, there's plenty of resources out there. There's plenty of people who join you in that sentiment. And I think ultimately from an individual to collective, I think once people are able to join each other in the common ground of struggle, I think we're able to be a lot more unified. I think, mm. you know, once people see themselves as mm. if this doesn't directly affect me, no longer affects me, that no longer really is applied because I think everyone is in a similar storm and everyone's got their own set of circumstances. But the more we're able to see outside of ourselves, the more that we're able to clearly see inside of ourselves. We are infinitely connected. We're not isolated agents just you know, here to pay the bills and pay our mortgages and retire at a certain age, but rather much like my experience in the playground where we are our brothers and children's gatekeepers here playing in this, you know, playground of God. And we're here mm. to look after one another and, you know, through different steps of the ladder, through different challenges, we're able to see the light a little bit clearer with different rungs and different lifetimes of, uh, of our life ladders, you know, wow. in our travels. Wow. Wow. I think that's a great way to, to, to wrap up the interview, Jacob. I, I, I got to tell you, it's been, uh, it's been an honor having you here. Um, it's obvious that you've lived more than one life. You could not have gathered this much wisdom in 30 years. So I really appreciate you sharing this with us. Uh, the book is excellent. It's called Life After Breath. Um, how can people reach you uh, if they want to know more about you? Yes. Yeah, so you could go on my website at www.jacobalcooper.com. Uh, and there you could find, let's just say, if you want to email me, there's an email icon or my face. There's a Facebook icon for my professional page and there also Instagram too. So my whole goal is to give back what I was given in moments of deprivation of oxygen, which was inspiration in eternity in the face of facing finite head on. I was able to see the illusion of finite the most I can. And so my job is to give back what I was given. And that's my goal. And I think if that inspires you, my hope is that you could do the same and you could give your hand to help someone stand. And I think we're all here to help out each other. And we're here very much here in this earth school to be our brothers and sisters, gatekeepers and guides. Because that's ultimately, you know, what we're a part of here in this divine, unique symphony that we're all a part of. And the more our sound is in higher harmony with the higher octaves of the other side, the better it's going to sound and the more harmonized or collective symphony will be so that heaven doesn't have to be something that we wait for or hold our breath to. Rather, it's something that it's right here that we could exhalate to. And so my website, you could look at my book, resources, if you're interested in individual services or any other questions, it's always a pleasure to hear and to create community and to take away the illusion of isolation. Awesome. Thanks, Jacob. You have a great rest of your day. Brian, thank you so much for having me on your wonderful program. Keep up the excellent work and thank you viewers for listening. I hope that you were able to take something with you that you'd be able to integrate spiritual measures to practical measures in your everyday lives. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I want to make it really easy for you to reach me. So just send me a text to 31996 and simply text the word GROWTH, G-R-O-W-T-H. In fact, you can right now just say, hey Siri, send a message to 31996 
And when Siri asks you what you want to send, just say growth. You can do the same thing with OK Google. Thanks a lot. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to Grief to Growth. Brian hopes that you find this episode helpful and will come back for future episodes. Brian's best-selling book, Grief to Growth, Planted Not Buried, is a great resource for anyone who is coping with grief or knows someone who is. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, there are three things you can do to help. The first is to share the podcast with someone that you think it will help. The second is to go to iTunes, rate, and review the episode. The third way you can support the podcast is by becoming a patron. Head over to www.patreon.com slash grief to growth. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash grief, the number two, growth, and sign up to make a small monthly donation. Patrons get access to exclusive bonus content and knowledge that you are helping to spread the message of grief to growth. For more about Brian and grief to growth, visit www.grief2growth.com. Hey there, if you liked this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you liked. If you didn't like this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you didn't like. Go to grieftogrowth.com slash community and look for talk about the podcast. I'll see you there.